work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org.
the great pleasure of being the ministerial intern this year here at the First Unitarian Universalist Society of San Francisco. I'm so glad that all of you are here with us. If you haven't already, I encourage you to download the order of service. You can access it in the description of this video. It's posted in the chat and is emailed to everyone who receives our newsletter. So if you receive it, you can look for it there. And if you don't yet, I invite you to sign up. In the order of service, you'll find a roadmap for our worship this morning, lyrics to our hymns, and a listing of a number of upcoming events that I hope you'll read through and consider joining. You'll also see the extensive list of people who are instrumental in making this service possible. We really couldn't do it without this whole team, so I want to take a moment to recognize the folks who are instrumental in, in that creation. Beginning with our tech team, Jonathan Silk, our AV and sound expert, who will also be making a cameo on drums later this morning. Shuli Ong and Eric Shackelford, who work our now mini cameras. Joe Chapeau, who will be welcoming you in our chat. If you have any questions, you can write to Joe there. And Tom Brookshire and Alex Dar, who will be hosting Zoom coffee hour right after the service. I also want to recognize those who curate and perform our music, especially Mark Sumner, our choir director, joined by soloist Brielle Marina Nielsen. And this morning we'll enjoy several pieces by the classical guitarist Eric Hamilton, whose work you may remember from worship in years past. I want to thank those who prepare and beautify our space, Thomas Brown, our sexton, and Judy Payne for the beautiful flowers that we have this morning. Those flowers are dedicated today in loving memory of Jim Tovar, father and grandfather from Chris, Margaret, and Christine. I want to thank our two worship associates this morning, both Carmen Barsodi, who is here in the sanctuary with me, and Daniel Jackaway, who will offer our reflection this morning all the way from Delaware. We're delighted to have him back in the mix. We'll also hear a special announcement from Mari Magaloni, who is the chair of the newly formed Eighth Principal Task Force, and Liz Strand, who is both a task force member and also a member of our Board of Trustees. Whether you're a newcomer or a longtime member, you're invited to join us for Zoom coffee hour today after the service. And today there will be two special breakout rooms a group led by Donald Matusin that will discuss today's sermon, and one led by Mari Magaloni and Liz Strand, who will be hosting a room to answer your questions and invite your reflections about the eighth principle. So hope you'll consider joining one of those groups or just a regular coffee hour group today. And so we begin by lighting our blue candle as we have each Sunday since March in honor of all of you, bringing your spirit into this place until such time that we might be together again. May we enter into worship together now, singing our opening hymn, number 188 in your gray hymnal, also in your order of service, Come, Come, Whoever You Are. You'll notice the version today is just a bit different 
It's an alternate that includes an often omitted line from the original poem by Jalal al-Din Muhammad Rumi. We'll sing it through a number of times, so I invite you to sink into it and let yourself arrive here a little bit more fully. Welcome to worship, everyone. Good morning. Please join me in saying together our unison chalice lighting. We light this chalice for the light of truth and the fire of commitment. We light this symbol of our faith as we gather together. In place of our meditation on breathing this morning, Eric Hamilton has prepared a musical meditation. All the same, we invite you to deepen into your breathing as we weave the next layers of worship together. Thank you. 
please join me in saying together our covenant. Love is the spirit of this church, and service is its prayer. This is our great covenant, to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in freedom, and to help one another. Recognizing there is human suffering all over this world in the course of natural and human catastrophes, we ring our gong each Sunday morning to pause together to remember, to grieve, to try to comprehend some of this suffering and struggle. This week, we surpassed two heartbreaking milestones in the myriad of losses to COVID-19, exceeding 2.5 million deaths worldwide and 500,000 deaths here in the United States. It is near impossible to comprehend the weight of these numbers. Each one of those numbers, a life, precious and irreplaceable, each one of those people who loved and were loved. In this recognition, we hold to the intersecting and compounding effects of this pandemic, the ways that it colludes with structural racism, inequity, and oppression the ways that this torrent of loss is intensified for people of color, poor and working class people, immigrants, and people with disabilities. We hold in our hearts all of the people now at greater risk in this pandemic, as a result the criminalization of migration, remembering it especially as we have since June of 2019, the over 500 children permanently separated from their families. No amount of strikes of our gong can fully hold the weight of such tremendous loss. And so we strike our gong this morning, but once, that in its ringing we might connect each one of us with one of those lives one of those children, 
one of those 500,000 people here in the United States. Those 2.5 million people around the world whose lives this pandemic has cut short. That we might stand in our one precious life and hold in reverence and mourning one other. That from that place, we might ease the tide of human suffering this coming week, however so we can. We'll let its ringing reverberate in a moment of shared silence. Spirit of life and love, great mystery that binds our lives together. We gather this morning as pieces of a whole, with appreciation for our edges, for our individual sovereignty and the dignity brought by self-determination with gratitude for the ways that together we can nurture community built on relationships defined by trust and mutual accountability. And we gather with reverence for the mystery beyond our naming that moves among and between us. We know this week especially of the deep ways our lives impact one another. A truth laid more bare than ever in this challenging time. Support us in meeting this truth not by scarcity or fear, but with courageous vulnerability finding solace in the recognition that our thriving is bound up together. May we grow in our love and compassion for ourselves, trusting in the mysterious ways that love and compassion ripple out. May we treat ourselves and each other with rigor and gentleness as we grow together. As we live into this messy, imperfect work of living in community, in covenant with one another, may we hold well this sacred balance, knowing that our liberation is both collective and co-created, and honoring all the while the unique and irreplaceable gifts that each one of us bring. May we know that each one of us is precious. And as Adrienne Marie Brown writes, may we break every cycle 
that makes us forget this. May it be so. Amen. Return again, return And with the warmth of love, we lit our chalice this morning. Our offering this morning will go to support the work of the Interfaith Movement for Human Integrity, a statewide California organization that connects people of faith to the work of social justice. Working at the intersection of spirituality and social movements, we mobilize congregations to take a stand on issues of social justice, like immigration and mass incarceration. And we engage people of faith to develop their own leadership so they can stand up against racism, discrimination, and the political challenges of the day. Please use the special offering line in the payment portal to make your donation to support this work. Thank you.
I love it when people tell me what they need from me and how I can best relate to them. It's so much better than bothering or disappointing them without knowing. Just last week, a friend gave me some helpful feedback. I sent her a link about some internet drama, a podcast we both like, was getting called out for not valuing the people of color on its staff. And then I sent her another link the next day with some more information about it. She responded to the second message, asking me to be mindful what I sent her and to ask her if it was a good time before sending something that might be upsetting. She said that she's found if she knows messages from someone might be stressful, she has a tendency to just ignore them, which she didn't want to do. My first reaction was surprise. I think twice before sending content with details or depictions of violence or any other especially difficult content. But I hadn't thought twice about sending yet another story of a discriminatory workplace. Of course, I'm lucky for workplace discrimination to be something that happens to other people and not something I really have to worry about. She is not. Not to mention that I am someone who checks Twitter and Facebook right before bed and right when I wake up. I drink the fire hose of what's going on in the world with reckless disregard for its impact on my mood. And that works okay for me. Regardless of my surprise, my next step was to send back a warm, thankful, and encouraging message saying that of course I would do that going forward and thanking her for letting me know. Because it doesn't really matter what I would want. What matters is the gift that my friend gave me of clearly communicating her needs so that I could adjust accordingly. I do my best to be mindful of how I'm acting and to look out for cues that something is amiss. But I know that I can't be perfect. And it's even harder now that so much of my communication is happening over text. So I know that sometimes I do things that bother people or make them less excited to spend time with me. And they keep it to themselves. I do the same when I'm bothered. Giving direct feedback is scary. It takes energy. We don't always have that. So when someone does have the courage and trust to tell me what they need from me, I do my very best to fight the instinct to be defensive. I make sure they feel heard, feel my gratitude, and feel sure that it will actually lead to me making change. And then I make it a point to follow through. This is what accountability means to me among friends or in community. Everyone working together to meet each other's needs. Reminding people when they step out of bounds. And even more importantly, responding to those reminders with grace, humility, and genuine intent to change.
I just want to take a moment of appreciation for Mari and Liz especially for the inspiring invitation that we watched earlier and really for the whole Eighth Principle Task Force. Sam Hamner and Judith Stoddard and Scott Benbow, Rochelle Fortier-Nobibia, Jayanti Chapeau and Don Shearer for all of their labors, all the opportunities that they're planning for us to get informed and connected and clear together in the next couple of months as we learn about the Eighth Principle and then vote. I feel lucky to be entering into ministry in this moment where decades of work, both hard and overdue, are coming to fruition. And to happen to be here with you all in this moment where we have the chance to join with dozens of other congregations all over the country who've already adopted the Eighth Principle, and even more who are engaging the process in parallel to us right now, like our siblings of faith across the bay in Berkeley and Oakland. We're not walking alone on this path, not by a long shot. Of course, there, there will be questions that come up. Paula Cole Jones, in her presentation to us back in January, talked about some of the common ones. And no doubt we'll talk some more in the coming months. But here's one that got me thinking. It's around the word accountability. The eighth principle reads in part that we covenant to take actions that accountably dismantle racism and other oppressions in ourselves and our institutions. A colleague out east described a conversation that unfolded as her congregation began this process. And it was around this word, accountability. This word that many reflected evoked in them something negative, bringing to mind for some residual pain from their religious upbringings, evoking a kind of punitive or shaming feeling, one that many rightly suggested felt misaligned with our principles and our commitments as a movement. What does the word accountability evoke for you? Accountability feels to me like one of those words that we hear all the time, but might struggle to define. One of those words that's used so much that its meaning actually gets a little bit obscured. One of those words that sees a lot of traction, but little precision or careful unpacking. And one of those words that may carry a connotation that doesn't have all that much to do with its actual meaning at least not the way I understand it. What does the word accountability evoke for you? These days, faced with harm and wrongdoing on so many levels of our public life, it's a common question, where is the accountability? Or we need to hold them, her, him accountable for their actions. Often these calls for accountability articulate something important, the desire for justice, 
in the face of negligence or violence or wanton disregard for others. The thirst for this thing we call accountability can feel righteous and necessary in service of truth and reconciliation. But at the same time, the word accountability takes on a sort of terrifying, even bullying quality. The language of accountability starts to feel more like a weapon or a threat. Something that someone does to someone else. Something that could be done to you. While we might hunger for accountability on the level of politics or when it's happening to someone else, when accountability comes up in our personal lives, it can feel a lot less welcome. Because for many of us, we've come to conflate accountability with punishment. Indeed, the two have gotten so jumbled up together that it can be hard to parse them apart. But it matters, I think, that we do. In writing about the costs of mass incarceration, Daniel Sered, the founder of the organization Common Justice, argues that the criminal justice system, what can seem like the logical vehicle for accountability, is actually diametrically opposed to it. A sort of kryptonite to accountability, she says. There are, of course, the moments, many of them in our recent collective memory, where some people, even with seeming clarity of their culpability, never see the inside of a courtroom or the verdict we might think is just. But even taking the cases where the justicism does seem to be working as intended, Sarah argues it remains a poor vehicle for accountability. From the trial where pleading not guilty, regardless of one's relationship with the offense, is strategic, even encouraged. And certainly in jail or prison, which severs people from community and has morphed as activist and philosopher Angela Davis reminds us, from a means of rehabilitation to a system centered on punishment as an end in and of itself. For all the ravages of prison, Sarah writes, it insulates people from what they've done. Though cries for accountability persist, practically speaking, punishment has displaced it. The impact of this conflation is hard to fully comprehend, Sarah tells us. But we have an opportunity to reverse that displacement, to reclaim what we have given up and what has been taken from us. And to begin the work of building an accountability-based culture that we all deserve. Sarah and her organization are part of the world of transformative justice, a field of study and practice that considers community-based alternatives to incarceration and community-based ways to respond to harm in general. Transformative justice holds a vision one of a world that can respond to harm in ways that honor the humanity 
of all involved. Responses that can sustain or even deepen community all the way through and get to the root of structural change required to prevent harm in the future. It's an example of moral imagination of the most audacious kind. The kind of vision that can be hard to even wrap our heads around. So long we have been steeped in another vision of justice. To an outsider, the vision of transformative justice could seem naive, out of touch with the realities of harm that people do to one another. Quite the opposite though. Transformative justice begins with the assumption that we will hurt one another. Shaped as we are by the layers of structural inequity and harms that are quite literally generational. Harm will happen. We will disappoint each other. We will hurt each other. We will mess up in ways big and small, both. Yet, the path forward isn't to start with the biggest and most intractable harm, at least not by itself. For change to happen on the collective scale, change is required on every level. For as one transformative justice practitioner asks, if we can't handle the big things between us, how can we handle the small things? What we practice on the small scale can build our capacity for the bigger structural work and vice versa. The patterns around accountability and punishment that shape our politics, our institutions, these play out inside of each one of us too. It demands interrogation then when we talk about accountability in our intimate relationships, in communities like this one. What do we mean? I have a hunch that most of us have experienced or at least witnessed punishment masquerading as accountability. Attempts at holding to account that deliberately or not use shame as a tool. Attempts that rush past the relational component of this work and straight to fissure, expulsion or exile what some people describe as canceling. To be sure, there can be situations where this can be a necessary response. And we know that there are plenty of situations when the fear and shame that these punitive interpretations of accountability evoke, not just in the person being taken to task, but to everyone witnessing it too. We know that these can shut down learning, shut down change, and ultimately shut down accountability. It's no wonder then that accountability gets a bad rap. It is, I think, this fear of being canceled, being cut off from community that is behind our collective aversion to this deeply necessary work. 
our avoidance that consequently creates a culture where true accountability is hard to find. But maybe it doesn't have to be that way. Mia Mingus, who is an educator, writer, and visionary, both in the field of transformative justice and disability justice, offers an alternative vision, a dream, of how we might be differently together. What if accountability wasn't scary, she writes. It will never be easy or comfortable, but what if it wasn't scary? What if our own accountability wasn't something we ran from, but something we ran towards? Something we desired, appreciated, held as sacred? What if we cherished opportunities to take accountability as opportunities to practice liberation, to practice love, to practice being the kinds of people we want to be? What if we trusted accountability was done with love and knew that we too could name and be heard in what hurt, what went wrong when it happened to us and to heal rather than carry our hurt around or wall ourselves off in anger or pain? What if? What if? What if we considered accountability to be a kind of love? A love of self and a love of others. One of the big observations that Mingus makes is that accountability has to be consensual. It cannot be forced because accountability requires change. And change ultimately, is a choice. A choice that each one of us makes for ourselves. So, for instance, she encourages that rather than thinking about holding others accountable, we consider first how to be accountable ourselves. This learning to be accountable is a skill, Mingus says. An art, a craft, something akin to what Reverend Vanessa invited us into last week around getting ready. It is a muscle that each of us can start developing so that it is stronger when we inevitably need it. But that doesn't mean it's something we have to do alone. Writing on the subject, black liberation activist and author Malika Devish Cyril asserts that while accountability isn't something we hold each other to, it is something we help each other to be. It is something that we practice together. Does that sound hard? Complicated? Difficult to even know where to start? It might be. But each one of us, I think, is already practicing some version of accountability. Each one of us, I suspect, has a relationship or several where we practice accountability without even thinking about it. Where it may not be easy, but it isn't scary. You make sure your kid gets a healthy dinner. 
You make sure your dog gets their vaccines, your mother gets a card and lunch on her birthday, that your spouse is treated with respect and honesty. You honor the professional ethics you swore an oath to. And if your kid, your mother, your partner, your colleague tells you that you've hurt them, you pause and listen and change. Accountability is there in the showing up, in doing what you say you're going to do, and in owning up when you don't. As Daniel shared, accountability is reminding each other when we step out of bounds. And even more importantly, responding to those reminders with grace, humility, and genuine intent to change. Even when it isn't your intent to hurt, as Daniel modeled so beautifully. Essentially, accountability is an affirmation of relationship. And as we deepen into the practice, it widens the circle of concern, bringing in all the relationships that knit our lives together into a powerful and regular reminder of our fundamental interdependence. It is an affirmation of everybody's humanity, an affirmation of the truth of each one of our inherent dignity, whatever happens between us. For me, it is about choosing to stay in relationship, even when things are hard, and working with the strength of relationship in mind always. I think we need to tell each other these stories, stories like the one Daniel shared, stories where the gift of giving feedback that Daniel talks about is met with the gift of being accountable, stories about courage, and growth and transformation. Doing the work and talking about it might help us grow into this practice in putting love over punishment, healing over retribution, knowing that each expression is not a solitary action, but as Mia Mingus suggests, an intentional drop in an ever-growing river of healing and repair. A drop that has the potential to nourish, comfort, and build back trust on a large scale, carving new pathways of hope and faith through mountains of fear and unacknowledged pain. Like drops of water that gradually can carve through rock, we start small in the workshop of our daily lives, knowing that all of us at some point will be on both sides of harm. What if we start by holding ourselves accountable? Not with shame or self-punishment, but holding honesty and love and relationship as we step towards the harm and repair. Start as we will this year, holding ourselves as a community, accountable for prioritizing, healing from the harm of racism and oppression. Start by honoring the gift of feedback that we have been given by people of color in this community, in our denomination, and in our country that things need to change. And meeting that gift of feedback with the gift of showing up, moving towards accountability, knowing that it is an expression of our covenant with one another.
exercising power in the opposite direction of harm. May we turn away from fear and turn toward learning, toward dreams that require some more personal and interpersonal work for us to plant them firmly in our communities and in our world. May we remember that accountability is the work of love. And love is the spirit of this church. Jonathan and Mark and Brielle. That was lovely. I want to close with these words from the Reverend Rebecca Savage. She writes, Spirit of life and love, we have gathered under the banner of a shared faith. 
We are born of a welcoming grace that extends and receives love. We are touched by the ways we have fallen short of who we strive to be. And here we are reborn, forged by a greater courage. Let us move from this place encouraged and refreshed for the journey ahead. I invite you to join me for our closing benediction. And so, may the light of love shine upon us. Out from within us be gracious unto us and grant us peace. For this is the day we are given. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org.